generally speaking, whatever, whatever we as humans treasure most will be revealed by our response to those treasures. Our behavior will reveal what we treasure most. If you think about this, um, we see this throughout our life. We, we, we meet our spouse and we, we fall in love with that, that person that we hold dear to our heart. We're consumed with that person and that person's life. And we respond by trying to please our treasure. The lady is worth whatever it takes, guys. Isn't that right? We do whatever it takes to please her. We, we are consumed with this treasure and we respond to it in our behavior. We as parents respond to our kids likewise. We, we treasure and respond to the birth of our children. And then throughout their life, we continue to respond to, to them as our treasure. We respond to their first steps with joy and silly faces and laughter. We respond to the treasure of their first words by writing them down and sharing them with our family. We respond to the treasure of their first adventure on a bicycle by taking pictures and sending them to all of our friends and rejoicing over their achievement. We respond to the glory of those moments with joy and praise that's evident for all to see. We adore our spouse publicly. We rejoice over our kids publicly. We are consumed with this because that's why we were created. We were created to reflect glorious things, not receive glory for ourselves. We reflect the glory of God as we are consumed with the glory of His truth that we received in the gospel. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when we look at Philippians 1.27, we can see that Paul commands the Philippians to do just that. So just quickly look with me at Philippians 1.27. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians a command in this text. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, whether I am able to be released from this prison and come into your presence, or if I die in Christ's service, there's one chief end that you are to set your life upon. You are commanded in this text to start revealing the value and joy of the gospel through your manner of life, through your conduct. You need to reveal that you belong to Christ, that you are part of His heavenly kingdom, that you are heavenly citizens. He says, whether I'm there or not, the command is for you to start right now reveling in the gospel in a way that the world can see and testify that you belong to Jesus. Now, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to pick up here in this text. And I'm going to give you a detailed exposition on how to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And I'll teach you what it looks like specifically to do that as we go through this passage, 27 to 30. 
But today, for us to get there, I think we need to start here. I think we need to start with asking ourselves why, why Paul commands that the gospel of Christ should be valued by our manner of life. We need to ask that question. Why does he command us to do something like show the gospel through our behavior? He tells us to do this, and I just need us to understand this. He's telling us to do something that is a direct command from God, but it's a gospel-driven command. It is a command that flows out of us because of the gospel's power in us. It doesn't make us worthy. Our worthiness is as a result of the gospel's power working through us in sanctification. And what is spurring Paul on to command this? I know it's the Holy Spirit. I recognize that God inspired him to write this. But why does he want this? Why does he see this as a supreme value that needs to be reflected through their behavior? In 127a, you see the command. I'll give you my paraphrase of it. Let your lifestyle, both corporately and personally, he's actually talking to the church. The context is the church. But we can apply this to our lives personally because you are part of a corporate body. Let your lifestyle be an accurate measurement of the gospel's worthiness. Let your lifestyle be an accurate measurement of the gospel's worthiness. The Greek word translated worthy here in this text speaks of something that weighs as much or carries the same value as something else. That's why I say he wants your lifestyle to be an accurate measurement of the gospel's worth. It needs to be of equal value to the message you proclaim. He's simply saying that our conduct, our our manner of life, should be consistent with the gospel that we proclaim. That gospel that we proclaim tells us that we have been regenerated by God's power and wisdom and grace. And that it has, re, it has reclaimed our lives. We are new creations in Christ. Therefore, your manner of life should be an equal and accurate measurement of the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul's trying to get at. That's what he wants them to wrap their minds and lives around in this text as he's writing to them for their encouragement and their edification and their continued sanctification. But his passion to do that, I think, is grounded in and undergirded by his love for the gospel of Christ that was revealed to him. So if you would, go with me to to Romans to look at that this morning. Romans 11. This is where we'll spend most of our time, in Romans 11. In, in Romans 11, 25 to 36, Paul reveals why. He reveals the why to the command. He reveals why our lives should reveal how much the gospel is worth, not just in heaven one day, but here on earth. He reveals why our lives should reveal how much the gospel is worth. And when we look at this, you see this is really composed of not only some questions and statements, but also some praise and adoration and doxology. And what we're going to do is we're going to primarily be looking at the doxology in verses 33 to 36 this morning. But I want to read the entire passage here from 25 so that we actually get a flow of his thought here. 
after spending much time in writing Romans 1 to 11, which encompasses man's depravity and God's grace and salvation and sovereignty, he comes here and he, he reflects on God's promised work that will be coming in the future. And he says, all this work is wrapped up in the gospel. And he says in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are cast off. They are set aside. They are enemies of God for your sake, speaking to the Gentiles. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have, now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned, God has found that all, he says, all are guilty, all are disobedient, both Jews and Gentiles he's talking about here. Both are equally disobedient. So he's, he's determined this, he's found this, he's found this to be true, and so he has imprisoned them, he has condemned them all for the same reason they have rebelled against God's revelation. And he, he says they're all equally guilty. And just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're going to be saved by your ethnicity. You're going to be saved by his saving grace. His way, his mercy will be what saves both the Jew and the Gentile here. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then Paul responds, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria would be the exclamation point on this text. In this text, Paul is rejoicing over what undergirds every command that he gives to believers in the New Testament. Paul is rejoicing over how the gospel reveals, number one, the value of God's wisdom. Number one, the value of God's wisdom. And number two, the gospel reveals the wealth of God's grace. The wealth of God's grace. And I hope that we will see that in 33 to 36 this morning. In 33 to 35, we see that number one, 
the gospel exalts the value of God's wisdom. His omnipotent, holy, and just wisdom. He says again, the, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's basically saying, I, I can't see bottom here. I, I, I've written this, this letter and, and I can't see the bottom of the depth of the riches of God's knowledge and His wisdom to work in such a way that He can save the Jew and the Gentile both by grace through faith in His provision. He says, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways and he asks the question, who, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who can tap into his mind? Who, who knows all the reasons and the whys and the, the depth of knowledge that lies within the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Who has counseled God? Who's, who's helped God out in this process? Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer is rhetorically, no one. No one. The manner of life that we live that's reflecting the gospel is a result, a direct result of God's wisdom and grace. And that is invaluable. The value is like his knowledge. It is so deep and so rich that we can't see the bottom of it. We can't see an end to it. Paul is looking back again in this text over the entire epistle at this point. And in verse 33, he just breaks out with praise, doxology. Paul, Paul has expounded. It's amazing if you think about what he's written. Paul has expounded in this letter alone. He has expounded God's plan of salvation that was hidden to man previous to this text. He has expounded the plan of salvation by which a just and holy God can save ungodly sinners and still be just in doing so. Paul has, has revealed in this epistle how Christ brought more glory to God and more blessings to man than Adam ever could. Paul is rejoicing over the fact that God's allowed him to, to understand and to reveal that there is an unbreakable sovereign chain that links us to Him, to God, to the redemptive work of Christ that no man can damage, no man can break. He is rejoicing here over the great value of God's wisdom that is affecting him at this moment in a very particular way. The manner of Paul's life is being affected by the glory of God's wisdom here, by the gospel. And in 33 to 35, the, the statements and questions display that. They display that Paul sees such a, a deep value, an immeasurable value to God's wisdom and grace that he can't do anything but rejoice over it and ask questions about it that he knows the answer to already. But he wants to ask the question so that we understand we are but men. Verse 34, he says, Who has known? Who has known the mind of God? No one. No one has been able to plumb the depths of God's wisdom. I mean, even Paul, he's writing Romans. And God is giving him this revelation. 
And yet, Paul, you'll see over and over again in every epistle, he starts doing the same thing. Oh, the king, immortal, invisible, the only God. He's just always amazed by the depth of God's wisdom. And no creature, no being that God created has a right to doubt or question the wisdom of our Creator. He wants us to understand that. When you compare man's wisdom up against God's wisdom, we have no right to doubt the wisdom and the working of God in creation and in salvation. We see an example of of a man being rebuked for doubting God or questioning God's reasoning and purposes in the book of Job. Job 38. If you go there with me, I'll show you. Job 38, verse 1. And actually, I could read the entire chapter, but I'll spare you that. You can go back and do that on your own. Because the whole chapter emphasizes that God's wisdom cannot be plumbed by man. That's why Paul is exalting the great value of this, because in this wisdom, he has revealed man's salvation. But look what it says here when when Job is speaking to God and the Lord answers him back in Job 38.1. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Okay, first of all, God knows who it is. This is a direct, humbling, loving rebuke. You're coming to me with words without knowledge. You, you don't know what I know. You don't know why you're going through what you're going through. It's, it's not for you to know at this point. I know. I'm good and I'm sovereign. Trust me. He says, if, if, if you want to you question me, look what, look what I want you to do. Verse 3. <laughs> Prepare. Dress for action like a man. Hang on. Hold on. Be ready because you're fixing to get slammed. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Were, or where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This is a divine, sarcastic rebuke here. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who has stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Where were you when I made the oceans? Where were you when I set their boundaries? And in verse 12, he asks, Have you commanded the morning since your days began, Job? And caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, are you in control of the universe? The rotation of this planet? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shall shake out of it, be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal. That's actually an allusion to the earth rotating on its axis. 
and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recess of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. We have no right to doubt the wisdom of our good and sovereign God as related to creation and also related to salvation. Romans 11.34 goes on to ask not only who has known the mind of the Lord, but who has been his counselor on, on matters of creation, who's counseled God? Obviously no one. On matters of salvation, who's counseled God? Obviously, no one. God does whatever His sovereign and holy will desires. And whatever He wills is for His own praise. But, but listen, it's also for our good. He is almighty and sovereign and omnipotent. Knows all things, can do all things. And He wants us to praise Him for all things. But He is good to His creation. He is good to us in ways that are immeasurable and of high value. Such a value that would change the way our eternal destiny will go. Verse 34 asks, Who is God's counselor? And I think the answer is, God is His own counselor. He didn't consult us in creation. He doesn't consult us in salvation. He does all things according to the counsel of His sovereign and holy will. That's what Romans teaches us. and That's, what Paul, that's why Paul's rejoicing in Romans 11. He's rejoicing over what he wrote in Romans 9. Let's look at that. Romans 9, 13. It's part of his doxology here in Romans 11. He's rejoicing that we have a sovereign counselor who in his rich and gracious wisdom makes judgments about man's spiritual condition. And God is good in His judgments. And He's gracious in His judgments. And He's doing it so that we can see His goodness and grace and wisdom. Look what Romans 9, we'll begin in verse 13, says. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Here's, here's, here's man questioning God. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Remember, Romans 11 said that we are all imprisoned under disobedience or in disobedience. If God saves any sinner, He is, he is so gracious. If He is fair to all of us, we all receive His condemnation in hell for eternity. There's no injustice on God's part for saving some. That's pure mercy. When all deserve wrath. Is there injustice? No. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, then it depends not on human will. 
or effort, exertion, human ability, good works, religious activity. But on God. It depends on God. That's the counsel of His holy and sovereign will revealed to us. Our salvation depends on God. And that's good because He's sovereign. He can accomplish it. And He's holy. It means He's good and He seeks the best for us. And He's merciful, according to this text. Our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Because God wants His name proclaimed in all the earth, He saves some. That's what He's going to say. He's not obligated to save all. All deserve condemnation. He uses Pharaoh sovereignly so that He can declare His glory through the redemption of His people as they come out of slavery. The same for you and I. Slavery to sin. Slavery to self. Slavery to the world. So that He is declared in the world through the manner of life in which we live after The gospel has transformed us. Verse 18 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, here's the question again. These are questions that everyone asks. This is not necessarily a sinful question. It could be a sinful question. If you go on to doubt God's wisdom, if you go on to devalue God's wisdom and grace and revelation. But an honest question that we've all asked is right here in this text. If God does this, why does He still find fault with some? Who can resist His will? And just look at the wisdom of God in the next passage. He basically says, don't ask. Don't question this. You don't have the capacity You don't have the understanding nor the mercy to see things the way I see them. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. That is, that is the counsel of God worked out so that we can see His sovereign mercy. We can't doubt His mercy. We can't doubt His authority to do this. He is the potter. We are but clay. He owns us. And the very fact that He saves some of us 
and allows others to perish, that does not negate the value of his wisdom and his grace. It actually elevates it because we should have all perished. We should have all been under his wrath. We who were prepared beforehand for mercy should respond to the mercy now on earth through the manner of life that we live. That's Paul's undergirding to his command in Philippians 1.27. In Romans 9 and Romans 11, both Paul's asking questions himself. He's asking, does the finite mind of man have the right to question the infinite wisdom of God? No, that's the answer. But I think that it's more than just no. I think that we have an answer. We can simply trust in the revealed wisdom and mercy of God that is in Scripture. We can simply accept the Word of God and set back and be amazed by His wisdom and His grace. That's what Paul is saying we should do. And if we, if we do this in Romans 11.33, we will praise God, we will declare God's greatness, and it will transform us practically. Trusting in God's Word and what He said He would do and what He has accomplished will transform our motives. Our obedience will be conformed by the revelation of His grace. We understand when we read these texts that they're hard text because our minds are finite. And God's mind is infinite. But in God's infinite grace, He has revealed to us what we need to know about salvation in these texts. We have no reason to doubt Him. This text and every text you see in the New Testament that talks about our salvation testifies that God alone initiated a wise and gracious plan that is beyond human comprehension. I can't fully comprehend it. Paul couldn't fully comprehend it. So he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who knows his mind? Who gives him counsel in these matters? Not me. Not you. We can't fully understand it, but we can fully accept it by faith because God has revealed it to us in his holy and inerrant word. In God's wisdom, I believe, and confess that He gave us an invaluable gift when He gave us His Son. In His wisdom, He gives us Christ. That's a gift that we can never repay Him for. This gift is of infinite value. Maybe that's why He lets us stay in heaven forever. So that we can continue looking into the value and the glory of Jesus and declaring it and revealing it by glorifying and singing and honoring Him forever. That's a gift that gives us hope about our eternal condition, but also it changes us temporally here on earth. It changes our position. It changes our decisions. It changes our thinking, our behavior, our conduct. Even though Paul, in, back there in Romans 11, he asked the question, who has given a gift to God who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This, this gift that we've been given, we can't give a gift back to him because this gift that he gave us has no equal. 
If we're saved, we need to understand that. We don't walk worthy. We don't live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel to pay God back for salvation. Just forget that. You walk worthy. Your conduct is conformed to the image of Christ because of the gospel that's at work in you, that's flowing out of you, that's transforming you by God's grace for His glory. It's a response of a regenerated heart. That's what sanctification is. It doesn't bring us closer to God. We're already as close as we're going to get. We're in Christ. But following His commands is the effect of the life of Christ flowing out of us. And that is of infinite value. So, remember, if if you are truly born again, you're You're saved by God's grace, His favor toward you and His Son's atoning work. You're saved by God's gracious choice alone, not by human efforts. So this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to rest in that as the undergirding that will propel you out to live in a way that is an accurate measurement of the gospel. Be glad in this. Just be glad and and let the joy of your salvation be revealed through your transformation. Let, Let the joy that you receive through the Word be exposed to the world. Let the joy reveal to the world what you treasure most, which is God's gift. That's what propels us to follow the command in Philippians 1.27. We couldn't bring ourselves close to God for salvation. Being dead in sins, we were a valley of dry bones. We couldn't offer God anything except sin and deadness. And everything we have now is because of Christ. So we're not bringing Him things that bring us closer to Him. He's already brought us in by His grace through Christ's work. So we should rejoice We're as loved as we will ever be in Christ. That's what drives our obedience. That's what drives holiness. Sanctification, I I realize that we have a part to play in it. But sanctification is justification in action. That's all it is. It's faith working itself out in our life so that others may see and that God would be glorified. That's what God said He would do when He saved us by His grace. Look with me at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. The first few verses explain to us why we could not come to God on our own would not come to God on our own, and had nothing to bring God except our sin. Therefore, that's not what drew us to God. God drew us to Himself by revealing this about us and by revealing the truth about His Son Jesus through the Gospel. So the Gospel is the undergirding of our transformation. Look what he says in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, first of all, we're dead in this text, but we are active dead people. We are actively pursuing what we love most, which is sin, Satan, and self. That's what we're doing. We're acting in disobedience. We're all under disobedience. We're all imprisoned under this declaration here, under this truth. He says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich or abounding in mercy, compassion, because of the large or abundant or the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, by his unmerited favor. You have been saved, rescued from his wrath. And raised up, not just your sins wiped away, but the righteousness of Christ is laid to your account so that you would be raised up with Him and seated with Him in a holy place, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Under His righteousness, forgiven by His perfect and righteous blood. So that, here's the purpose of this rescue, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace alone you have been saved through faith alone in this revelation. And this is not your own doing, the text says. It is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God, which includes grace and faith. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were prepared beforehand for His mercy, and we were prepared beforehand to reveal that mercy through our manner of life that responds to the gospel of grace. As we respond to the wisdom and the value of God's wisdom here, our lives are transformed. It says that God, who was rich in mercy, rescued us according to His wisdom and for His glory. I just, I just want us to enjoy that for a moment. Enjoy this. Enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enjoy God's sovereign Grace that captured you through Christ. And then, then let your life reveal your most valuable gift. Then let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is what produces a manner of life that seeks to elevate and value the gospel. We know that God did all the work and that we see that we receive all the benefit. And that's what leads to good works. That's what changes our manner of life. Pondering the gospel and its depth will transform you
practically here on earth. When we recognize that, when we recognize that God graced us, that drives us to live in a manner, manner that is worthy of the gospel. I believe that that revelation itself, the revelation of God's gracious choice of Paul, transformed the manner of his life. Look further in Ephesians to chapter 1. I think this transformed the, the manner of life in which Paul lived and his activity. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, now Paul emphasizes this in verse 4. We're chosen before the foundation of the world. We're chosen for a specific purpose. It's to be holy in heaven. That's true. But that's not where salvation begins. It begins here on earth. He says we're chosen so that we would live as sanctified people, set apart people, holy people, blameless in this life, in Christ, by His grace, but blameless before Him. He says he realizes this. But here's the reason in the latter half of verse 4 into verse 5. He says, I know this because in love, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. This revelation, the revelation of God's love that predestined that He would be an adopted son in Christ through Christ's work caused Paul to be holy and blameless before God in his manner of life here on earth. Paul understands, as you read any of his epistles that talk about the doctrines of grace or the sovereignty of God or election or predestination, he knows absolutely sure that this is not some cold, calculated choice. This was a costly, compassionate, and Christ-exalting choice on God's part. He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. He sacrificed His Son so that we could be sons and daughters of God. Yeah, we're chosen by God's sovereign grace. We're elected and predestined by God's gracious wisdom. But it was a costly affair for Jesus. God brought this plan about by sending His Son to take our place. He sent Jesus to be our suffering, sanctified substitute. He sent Jesus to live our life joyfully pursuing the will of God unlike us. We fall short of that. He sent Jesus not only to live our life, but He sent Jesus to die not just joyfully because He looked to the cross with joy, but He died sacrificially and humbly to secure our salvation for eternity. This was God's doing. God crushed His Son for us. God alone did the choosing and the saving. We don't boast, but we do respond. That's the, that's the undergirding of Philippians 1.27. Respond to the gospel of Christ in your manner of life. Respond like Paul does there in Romans, in the last verse, 1136. 
I like this because Paul's responding to his own questions. Paul is so caught up in, in the glory of Christ and the glory of God's salvation in the gospel, he responds to his own questions with more praise and adoration. We see that, secondly, that the gospel, in Paul's estimation, the gospel reveals the wealth of God's, not just his wisdom, but his grace. It's for from him, he says, and through him and to him are all things. Now, he's, he's speaking in the context of redemption. And he's speaking in the context of the way that redemption will transform this whole creation one day when all the sons of God and daughters of God are gathered around to see the glory of God in a new heaven and a new earth. That's why all of this is taking place is to put Jesus on display. His glory, His work, His grace, His mercy, His love, His sympathy, His sacrifice. And if we, if we get this... Walking in obedience will not be a trial for us. It will be our joyful desire. When you, when you understand that your salvation is from God, it's through God, and it's for God, so that God on the last day would be praised. He's praised over what He's done with you. He's taken, he's taken clay pots and he's transformed them into trophies of his son's love. That's why our manner of life should reveal how much the gospel is worth. Verse 36, again, he says it's from God. The plan comes from God. The plan was to send his only son to rescue us from our sin. God planned it. God is the author of it. Man didn't conceive of this. Man couldn't conceive of this because man is dead in his sins and trespasses. But God, who is rich in mercy, had a plan to send His Son to redeem wicked and ungodly people so that God would be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. He would deal with our sin specifically. None of our sins skate by. He doesn't look at our sins through His fingers. He doesn't wink the eye. He doesn't ignore them. He has to deal with every one of our sins and He did that by laying them on His own Son and crushing the life out of Him upon a cross instead of us. That was God's plan. It's from Him. Verse 36 says that the Gospel is also through Him. It comes through the working out of His plan in time. Through the finished work of His Son here on earth through the means of God's gift, which is Christ's life. His perfect life is the means of our salvation. His sacrificial death is the means of our salvation. His glorious resurrection is the means of our salvation. It's through God sending His Son in time that we have these things. And because of this, sinners are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We're washed clean by Christ's blood. And we're raised up from the dead to reign with Him forever. All because of God's wisdom and grace. And because Jesus, in His Father's favor and wisdom and pursuit of His Father's glory, finished the work of redemption for us. He finished the work that God the Father had sent Him to do on our behalf. God's wrath fell upon Him and was satisfied in His death in our place. 
Jesus' sacrifice allowed God then to be both, again, the just God who dealt rightly with our sins, and he was the God who is the justifier of the ungodly by sending forth his Son to be our substitute so that the last day God would be praised. Because that Jesus that he crushed, his Son, his beloved Son, his only Son, his holy and righteous Son, he crushed him because he was holy and righteous and the Son of God. He rose again on the third day to declare that his Father accepted his gift. The gift was a sin offering in our place. God the Father accepted it. He received the work of His Son in our place and said, Oh, this is well pleasing to me and all those who belong to you that you atoned for. Every single person that you died for will be brought up and raised up with you on the last day to be with me to see your glory. That's why Romans 11.36 ends with, We are to give God all the glory. We should be consumed with this as Christians as we ponder the gospel of Christ. We should be consumed with glorifying God because of God's wisdom. In God's wisdom, God sent forth His Son to be consumed for us as our guilt offering. And and that is reason enough for me to value Jesus' work and to reflect His work in my conduct, in my manner of life. Again, that's, that's the reason for the command in Philippians 1.27 that says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Are you amazed by this command? What undergirds it? Are you amazed by God's gracious gospel wisdom this morning? If you are amazed by God's gracious gospel wisdom, then obey His command in Philippians 1.27 and let the manner of your life reveal your thankfulness for God's grace. Live like this grace, this gift, is the most valuable possession you have on earth and that is reserved for you in heaven because it is. The value of this gift, of His wisdom and His grace that's exhibited in Christ's sacrifice is again the foundation of all Christian commands. This is what produces joy-driven obedience that reveals the gospel's great worth here on earth, not just in heaven in the future. This is what produces joy-driven obedience. That's what Paul is calling for. He wants the Philippian church to be strong, whether he's there or not. Strong in revealing that they are citizens of a holy and righteous kingdom because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's what leads the lost to salvation, and that's what cultivates our sanctification. We need to understand that. This is the foundation of our sanctification, the gospel of Christ. Let's pray and give thanks for that this morning. Lord, today we know that in your wisdom and by your grace, those that are here this morning that are truly saved are here 
because of Jesus and his sacrifice. And Lord, I, I pray that each and every one of us would respond to this great gospel message with the kind of life that would magnify Jesus' work and declare its great worth by turning our lives away from sin and turning us to your word for direction, to walk in holiness, to pursue righteousness, to evangelize the lost and declare your goodness. I pray that that would be the cumulative effect of the gospel in our lives as we ponder it, as we rejoice over it, as we sing about it, as we consider it, meditate upon it. Let that be what undergirds our actions, that propels us into sanctification, that transforms our conduct, our manner of life. And Father, I, I know that there are some in this room that don't even know what I'm talking about. And some that don't know what I'm talking about are, are hearing the gospel again for the 20th time or the 100th time. But there is no saving grace in their life right now. And I pray this, this morning, right now, the, the little ones, the, those that are here that don't know you, I pray in your mercy that you would reveal Jesus' glory and that you would draw them to salvation. And that they would one day be gathered with the, all the saints around the throne of grace, declaring your goodness and your greatness forever. And Lord, I also pray for the Christians here who have neglected their duty. We have all fallen short of your glory. We have all shifted away from the gospel too often. And Lord, we, we need to be shifted back. We need your direction and your comfort and we need your discipline. So Lord, help us. Discipline us by casting our eyes upon Jesus. And let us behold His wonder and His power and let that be the strength and the reason that the manner of our life would be transformed and conformed into His image. I pray this, Lord, for Your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, Amen.